Welcome to the Bridge Policy Download, produced by the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. Today, we're bringing you a conversation between Matthew Mitchell, Senior Research Fellow and Director of the Equity Initiative at Mercatus, and Dr. Bruce Yandel, Distinguished Adjunct Fellow at Mercatus. They discuss Bruce's latest economic situation report for March 2021, the latest COVID stimulus package, forgiving student loan debt, raising the federal minimum wage, and much more. If you would like to contact a scholar involved in this episode, please email mercatusoutreach at mercatus.gmu.edu. Welcome, everyone. My name is Matthew Mitchell. I'm a senior research fellow at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. And my guest again today is the distinguished professor, Bruce Yandel. Bruce, welcome back to the podcast. It's great to be with you. And on a, uh, where I am, a beautiful spring day, uh, Matt. I hope it is where you are. Well, we're getting there. We're getting there. <laughs> well, it's great to chat with you. Um, so I sh- a note to our, to our listeners, today is March 10th as we are recording this. And uh, right now, I believe President Biden's $1.9 trillion COVID relief package is being voted on in the U.S. House of Representatives. In your, your latest economic situation report, you spend some time on the package and you actually, I think, anticipate a lot of the changes that, as far as I know, have now been implemented. So let's start there. You know, what's in the bill and what's not in the bill? There's a huge amount in it, and a large part of what is in it, I do not know about. It's 600 pages long. I have not as yet read what I would call a good digest of of all that is in it. Uh, There's a tendency, understandably, for us to focus on the coronavirus aspects of it and what we might think of as the stimulus aspects. But there's, there are some other very large pieces that, uh, that I would simply call sort of traditional pork barrel politics. That is, once that train gets started in Congress, a lot of cars get added on. But the part that I have been trying to follow has to do with the funding that will go to individuals, families, and children, a one-time shot of $1,400 as it's all been advertised. The big question was, at what income level will these funds operate? I've been concerned that the income level had been set quite high. I mean, it was possible for someone with earning $200,000 in adjusted gross income to receive a check. Well, I'm not real sure those folks are really hurting as much as some of the folks down at the bottom of the stack. Right, right. You know, so I was sort of in my arguments and analysis, just trying to push to say, hey, let's focus on where the needs are greatest first and then work our way up the ladder. Another aspect of the bill, uh, as I'm sure it will be passed, includes a family annual grant, $3,500. And so and it's more complicated than that, but that's a simple statement of how it would work. Uh, it's, it expands with the number of children. And so what we have the makings of is a minimum income for America. I think this is laying the first foundation for it and, it, and those stones probably will stick and there will be more as we move forward. And of course, Matt, there was a lot of debate about minimum wage, as you recall, and both you and I have weighed in on that issue numerous times. Yes, yes. Well, let's let's break break some of these uh, issues down here. So, one way to think about it, I suppose, with with the relief, is that there is some rationale that is part philosophical, 
And there is some rationale that is part macroeconomics that says, uh, you know, it's needed for stimulus. Could we start with the macroeconomics? What's the best case that, say, a Keynesian economist could make for economic stimulus? I think it's difficult to make a strong case for this reason. Uh, we've had previous distributions of funding uh, as a result of coronavirus. Uh, roughly $3 trillion has been pumped out. About 40% of that has not been spent. Uh, it's resting in checking accounts, saving accounts, 401k. A good bit of that money was used to pay down debt. And so there's that's what I refer to as a fear proxy that has to do with a huge buildup of cash. And I would say waiting for the coronavirus to come under better control or waiting for vaccines to be more available. Mm -hmm. We do see some of that big buildup coming down a bit right now, but it's still historically large. And so that makes me think, well, why do we want to send another big check if our reason for doing so is to stimulate the economy, because there's a lot of stimulus that is out there now, not yet tapped. And it's possible, of course, for us to stimulate too much. And if all those bucks all, all of a sudden break through the dam and the money starts flowing out and we all relax and go shopping into the restaurants again, then we can look forward to some inflation. Uh, so in a way, that's sort of uh, maybe the macro analysis, which would say, let's be real careful here. And then in being careful, let's go to the philosophical part of it. Uh, let's set priorities for those people who are hurting most as read by people who've lost their jobs or people who are at certain income levels and start with getting the checks to those individuals and families first. About 30% uh, of the unemployed that has been generated by the coronavirus come out of tourism, restaurants, eating and drinking places. And quite often those are people who are maybe holding down two jobs, uh, figuring out a way to make a living, uh, unskilled, low levels of education, not easy to find another job in this economy or the one before coronavirus. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. that's where I wish we could find a way to do better targeting, Matt. So in terms of the ideal conditions for some kind of Keynesian style macroeconomic stimulus, the story really begins with aggregate demand or insufficient aggregate demand, right? Right. And, you know, the concern, as Keynes formulated it, the concern that perhaps out of our animal spirits, Perhaps just because we're 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 spending so much time thinking about other people, you know, whether you know we're kind of like we're worried to spend because we're we're worried that other people are worried to spend. <laughs> we're just not out there spending enough, and so the the Keynesian idea is well, let's borrow a bunch of money, and we recognize that in borrowing money, we're we're dipping a bucket into the pool and taking water out of the pool, and we're going to go around and you know fill it back in on the other side of the pool. But in, in the strange and weird case where we're stuck with too little aggregate demand, it might be we might actually raise the, the level of the water is sort of the Keynesian case here, right? The idea is people just aren't spending enough and prices haven't adjusted and maybe by borrowing we can somehow increase aggregate demand. But that story 
people argue against that story in the best of circumstances when it's, you know, most propitious perhaps for, for Keynesian style stimulus, but we're really not there now. Right. I, you know, that it's no. hard to make that case that that's, uh, we're at all in that kind of a strange situation where you might be able to uh, dip water, dip a bucket into the pool and one end and, and pour it out in the other and actually see the water rise. Right. Right. And, and, you know, that following that line of logic, which, which sort of is, taking the traditional Keynesian model and, and looking at it and say, okay, let's look at the model and see what guidance it might give us is the notion that Milton Friedman gave us of the permanent income hypothesis. Uh, that is that people respond to these stimuli depending on their view as to whether or not this is a temporary shot in the arm or is this going to be a permanent stimulus to my income and where, and where it's viewed as a windfall, uh, we individuals tend to treat it that way. And so the windfall might go to pay down debt, for example, uh, as opposed to rushing out and, and going shopping. But it also might cause you to trade cars a little bit earlier. And I think we're seeing some of that. Or it might cause you to say, well, let's renovate the house and let's add a room on, redo the kitchen. Uh, we're seeing evidence of that. Mm -hmm. But so far, it, it appears to me that what we in monetary theory used to call the precautionary demand for holding money, that that precautionary demand, as opposed to the transactions demand, is causing individuals to take a wait and see approach. And it, then it does raise the big question, well, what's really going on if you want to roll money out if people are not going to spend it? Let's don't call it stimulus anymore. Let's call it something else. Yeah, and and if you're going, you know, in macroeconomic terms, if you're if you're paying down your debt or you're you know accumulating some savings, that may be fine for for your household, but of course you have to balance that against the fact that the federal government is increasing its debt, and that's a, an obligation on y you as a future taxpayer. And to the point that Keynes you know, why, why we're doing this in the first place is you're not out there increasing spending in a way that's going to benefit the waiter or waitress who's lost their jobs because everything's shut down. Okay. Ultimately, there's not a lot of benefit. And then we get pieces of this that, that in a sense, cut in the opposite direction if we're trying to stimulate the economy. Providing a, an income credit or some minimum level of income that rises with the number of children Let's face it, it makes it a whole lot easier, I hope it will, for those families who receive that additional amount of funding. It also makes it less necessary for them to get out and find a job with the same sense of urgency that they may have had before. And then that works against getting an economy back up on its legs again, so, so to right. speak. You know, it does occur to me how poorly directed so much of this spending and also the past spending has been. I, I recently saw a statistic, Professor Anthony Davies suggests, I haven't run the numbers myself, but it's some, something like, if you take all the money that we've spent on all the coronavirus stimulus over the last year, and you directed it at the bottom 80% of people, you could each could get you know an enormous amount. I think it's something like $50,000. And that is uh, clearly we're not seeing that kind of relief targeted to the, to those who are least well off. So the money is going somewhere, but it's not targeted where, where it could do the most good. Well, you know, you touched on something earlier, Matt, that I wanted to go back to. And, and that is, 
there is no discussion of who pays the debt. There's no discussion of the debt that is exploding. Let's face it for what it is. And it's almost politically incorrect in the context of our time, coronavirus stimulus, let's see if we can't get out of this trap. It's almost politically incorrect for someone to say, well, now, wait a minute. There's no such thing as free money. At some point, somebody has to pay this off. Should we not think about the burden that we're shifting onto some other people? Uh, it's almost as if that's uh, uh, no man's land. Let's don't let's don't go there and even and even talk about it. But that's the reality, and 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 we know that that it would be nice if there were some sort of rule in the appropriations committees uh, and elsewhere that would require Congress to acknowledge what is going on when they fund programs for whatever reason. It's got to be paid for. Here's an analysis of what that means, even if it's just rather preliminary. I think it would be a useful discipline. Well, that raises another uh, point that you bring up in your piece, which is uh, double entry bookkeeping. I believe it was 1494, Luco Pacioli, uh, perhaps I'm, I'm uh, mispronouncing his name, but he was a Franciscan friar, an Italian mathematician, a collaborator and friend of Leonardo da Vinci, uh, roommate of Leonardo da Vinci, he put out a, um, an important encyclopedia of math in which he introduced to the rest of the world uh, this idea of double-entry bookkeeping. What is double-entry bookkeeping? And can you put that in the context of the current de debate over forgiving student loans? Yes. Well, double-entry bookkeeping, probably for most of us, it means if you, if you write a check to pay somebody, there has to be some place where that check is subtracting from a balance. And so the balance in your cash account goes down when the check clears and you have two entries, the entry where you wrote the check to pay Matt Mitchell for that bet I made and I lost. And then the subtraction from my bank account is the, is the other entry. And so double entry bookkeeping is a discipline uh, that is the foundation in a sense for all accounting, just as you point out, probably one of the most brilliant inventions in history back there but so that it does say there's no such thing as free it's got to come from somewhere you better make sure you have enough rocks piled up in the pile before you say i'm going to give you some rocks again there's a there certainly is a tendency with forgiving student debt which is still with us a lot of voices calling for it there's still a tendency to act as though we are just taking out the eraser and Congress is going to act, and we go to the blackboard and we erase the numbers and say, oh, we've erased the debt. But debt has to be paid at some point. That is, the government will have to either print the money, borrow the money. If indeed that debt disappears, it has to reappear somewhere else and, and be paid off. Surprising to me was an analysis that got released just last week from Brookings, uh, Matt, maybe you saw it, the most thorough one I've seen, where a couple of scholars at Brookings just went and plowed through the data with a fine tooth comb, the debt data for college and university debt to find out, okay, who are the people who owe this debt? What are their circumstances? Are these mostly people who graduated from state universities, community colleges, trade schools, or what? Well, the highest bulk of it is for people who did graduate education, 
They're people with professional degrees. Harvard ranks very, very high in terms of debt and the amount and the number of people who would gain if it were forgiven. But again, we get a different picture when people talk about forgiving it on the political side. It's, it's sort of the way it sounds with stimulus. Let's make it real big because it's going to help so many people who are in need. Let's forgive all the debt for education because it will enable those folks to get out and behave economically again and spend some money. Uh, it's a much more complicated picture than that. Yeah. Well, and then it gets it gets even more complicated when you start to think about the supply and demand curves for higher education. So usually in a microeconomics class, one of the first lessons that students encounter is the idea that the statutory incidence of a tax is not equivalent to its economic incidence. And in technical terms, it is the inelastic side of the market, the relatively inelastic side of the market that bears the tax. So in other words, if, if it's supply that is relatively vertical, relatively inelastic, it doesn't matter whether you put the tax on the supplier or the demand side, the suppliers are gonna pay it. If demand is relatively inelastic, relatively vertical, it doesn't matter whether you put the tax on the supplier or demand side, it's the demand side that's gonna pay it. Well, a corollary of that, of course, is that it's the inelastic side of the market when you subsidize a market that gets the benefits of a subsidy, right? And so when you think about higher education, you know, it's a whole lot easier for, for demand to change as price changes than it is for supply to change as price changes. In other words, the supply of higher education is quite inelastic. It's pretty difficult to very quickly increase supply as price changes because you got to go out and you know build a new school and get accreditation and hire professors and all that. So, you know, as more and more education is subsidized, of course we've seen the price of higher education go up and this is exactly what basic microeconomic theory would predict, which is that the inelastic side of the market is the is the side that benefits. So it's our respective employers, right? It's universities that benefit from this, unfortunately not the students themselves. Is that right? Yes, yes. And you know, and when you look at the numbers, just casual empiricism, if you look at the growth in student debt and you look at what has happened to tuition average tuition costs across higher education, those do grow together, just as you suggested they would, they would, Matt. You know, it's sort of interesting. I made a comment about forgiving student debt in a piece, a short piece that I wrote a few weeks ago. And, and I sort of asked in the piece, well, why is it that we're focusing on this debt? What about pickup truck debt? that the average person calls. The average loan for a new automobile or a pickup truck across all buyers is about $50,000, which is about identical to the average loan on student debt that we're talking about forgiving. And then elsewhere, I said, what about people who have a lot of debt as a result of cancer illnesses and surgery, people who have hospital debt, people who have gone bankrupt because of medical treatments? Why do we just focus on this higher education component student debt. What is it that's magic about that? I don't have an answer, math, but, but I do think that it's easier to get a stronger political, positive political reaction by referring to those students who maybe got hoodwinked and borrowed more money than they should, and now they are shipwrecked 
than talking about the person who had to buy a truck in order to keep their business going. Yeah, that's right. Well, you know, you, you brought some of this up, I, I think, also in your discussion of the stimulus package and the $15 minimum wage, which I think one of the things that I, I always admire about your work is you, you always bring in pl- public choice and political economy. So, you know, lurking behind every question is not just the, the microeconomics or the macroeconomics, but also the political economy. You brought up the work of some political scientists that have recently studied, studied this. Uh, it reminds me a little bit of what was, has sometimes been called director's law. And this is after Milton Friedman's father-in-law basically suggested most redistribution tends to go towards the middle class. Can you talk a little bit about this political science yeah, research? Yeah, well, something that really, really caught my attention, and I learned about the work of Bruce uh, Buena de Mesquita and Alastor Smith, two political scientists. The way I learn a lot of things, Matt, probably you as well, I learned about it from a graduate student with whom I was mm-hmm. working. <laughs> I got introduced to these ideas, and they were so helpful in organizing a way to examine a political phenomenon or a political economy phenomenon. But these two authors, they, they wrote a really neat book called Dictator's Handbook, and it's subtitled, Why Bad Behavior is Almost Always Good Politics. Uh, so from the standpoint of economists, the more inefficient it turns out to be, the better it is politically is, is <laughs> all the, par- the paradox here. But uh, they refer to people who gain political, uh, uh, political power, whether elected or appointed, because their theory applies to all kinds of political regimes. They talk about what is required to gain power and keep it. To gain power and keep it, the politician who is elected or appointed must make certain that the essential interest groups are on the train. I have to make certain that those that are essential to my holding power are with me. The next group, not quite as important, but still important, are called the influentials. They may not be essential. I can get by without them. I can survive without them, but it would be wonderful to have these opinion makers and influential people on my team as well. And all that is left are referred to as the interchangeables. In a republic or in a democracy, the interchangeables are, of course, the voters. Every voters matter but it's easier to replace one group of lost voters with another group of lost voters. And so they are interchangeable. And so what I did was to look at President Biden's approach in his program, in his package, things that he appears to be doing in the first few weeks of the administration. And by looking at those things, try to identify implicitly who are the essentials and who are the influentials. And in looking at it, just as you pointed out, the middle class is essential in our political system. And that helps to explain perhaps why the stimulus package is giving a payment to people who may have incomes that approach $200,000. That is a married couple, heads of household. If it were just the need for helping people who are hurting, you would not be quite getting to the middle class. And so the middle class tends to rise in importance when you look at the programs. And then the influentials. Mr. Biden has been very clear in his statements when running for office and now in for uh, in office that organized labor matters a lot. 
And so we look then, I look then at characteristics of the packages that seem to be offering something for organized labor. Maybe they're not essential, but they certainly are influential in terms of success because a very small percentage of the American workforce is now organized. But anyhow, that was the approach. And uh, maybe uh, trying to remember the next time one gets into a political debate or analysis, that little essentials, influentials, and interchangeables model might help a little bit. That is very helpful. Yes, yes. Well, in that same vein, you know, minimum wage apparently was taken out of the bill uh, due to Senate budget rules. It's They tried to pass it through reconciliation. And as I understand it, that requires that it, all aspects of the bill really touch on the budget. And the Senate parliamentarian said, no, uh, minimum wage doesn't doesn't count, so you can't include that in the bill. So they took it out, but it's still, you know, very much a live issue. In preparation for the bill, the Congressional Budget Office estimated that increasing the federal minimum wage to $15 an hour would, on the one hand, lift 900,000 workers out of poverty, which is wonderful. On the other hand, it would result in about 1.4 million lost jobs. So, you know, we can debate the, the minimum, the, those costs and benefits and the microeconomics of the minimum wage. But again, returning to the theme of the political economy, you know, who wins by raising a federal minimum wage to $15 an hour and who loses? You know, what's the political economy behind this? Matt, when you put a little bit of emphasis on federal, it was very appropriate. <laughs> because in, in, in most of the discussion, uh, particularly on the six o'clock news as people have talked about uh, the minimum wage piece and then it's being pushed out. It's almost as if it's immoral uh, that forces, evil forces have pushed this minimum wage part of the package out. And quite often that commentator might shake his face or head, shake her head and say, isn't it awful? We've had a minimum wage of $7.25 almost forever. No American can earn a living and take care of a family with $7.25 an hour. No one stops to say, generally, they don't stop to say, but we have 30 states that have considerably higher minimum wage, and any state that wishes to may change their minimum wage. In fact, well, Florida just raised theirs to $15 an hour on a step-by-step basis, not immediately. And so if any state can raise its minimum wage, if any city can have a higher minimum wage, and many do, well, then what explains the push at the federal level? It gets us back to the fundamental question. And uh, there are multiple pieces to the answer, I'm sure, but I think one of the pieces has to do with the desire of most people who are in business or a part of an any kind of competitive activity. Those folks prefer less competition to more. And so, if, if you are engaged in economic activity in a high cost part of our country where the cost of living is high, you can bet your boots that the wage levels will be higher because of that higher cost of living. And when you see your competition expanding in regions of the country where the cost of living is low and the wage structure is correspondingly low, well, one way for you to raise your competitor's cost is to push through a law that requires your competitors in that low-cost region to pay more for employees when you go shopping and expanding. And then you have people who are concerned for good reasons about school districts where they're losing population. 
population growth in the United States for years now has been primarily in this, the part of, this, of the country where the sun shines the most. Uh, the movement has been toward warmth in terms of climate and away from cold, and it's been going on a long time. And so you have school superintendents, school districts, politicians, people who are losing their economic base. And when the, you lose the economic base, darn it, you've got to raise your taxes to keep operating. And so mm -hmm. it becomes a cat chasing its tail, so to speak. Minimum mm -hmm. wage is one little way, perhaps, to slow that process. And then they always say, oh, well, we're just trying to level the playing field. It's a wonderful expression. Uh, it seems to be the right answer to a lot of problems. And when you hear that, you smile and say, oh, I understand. We all want a level playing field, don't we? Well, mm -hmm. maybe what we would really like is to have to pay the cost that we impose on other people, whatever that real cost might be, as opposed to having the power to raise their cost when they might prefer the world they had before. Yes, this, this reminds me of an, of an episode a few years ago. Congress had, you may recall, instituted a ban on the incandescent light bulb, the old-fashioned Thomas Edison light bulb. And I believe it was passed uh, in the, during the George W. Bush years, but the ban was going to be going to expire during the Obama years. And I was listening to an NPR report in which they were playing clips of Tea Party Republicans complaining about the ban on the incandescent light bulb. And the reporter decided, well, let's let's see, let's talk to the business people. Do they like the the ban? And so he interviewed everyone from, you know, those who sell uh, light bulbs on the floor of Home Depot to suppliers and shippers all the way up to a lobbyist at uh, GE. And to a person, all these suppliers actually said that they enjoyed the ban on the incandescent light bulb. And they said, you know, uh, one of them, the, the lobbyist for GE said, uh, look, I, I go down to Capitol Hill and I bring the incandescent light bulb and I bring the compact fluorescent light bulb, which was the, the big competitor. This was before, I believe, LEDs. This was the big competitor that, that GE was making at the time. And I bring it down to Capitol Hill and I explain to them, you know, it's just as easy for us to make these, these compact fluorescents. So, you know, keep the ban. So the reporter ends the story there and says, uh, well, I guess it's just all, it's more politics. Um, you know, if the business people actually like it, it must not be a bad regulation. So, you know, at this point I'm shouting into my radio <laughs> and they get, yeah, okay, so a lobbyist at GE just told you that he welcomes this limitation on himself. He's happy to have a rule that says he can't make, his company can't make the really low cost, easy to make incandescent light bulb. Wouldn't you ask him why, you know, he could voluntarily not make the old light bulb. Why, why would he want a ban on that? And of course, the truth is, you know, what you just said, it's, it's uh, the raising rivals cost model of regulation where it is, whereby uh, business leaders, they don't ask for rules that limit themselves. They want rules that, that, actually, that, that impose higher costs on their competitors. So in this case, yes, GE could make the compact fluorescent quite easily. But only GE could make the compact fluorescent quite easily. Their competitors could make the simple incandescent light bulb just as easily as GE. And so GE was happy to have a rule that, that raised the cost of those competitors because the competitors are not the, the, don't have the sophisticated production capacity of GE to switch over to the compact fluorescent so easily. Quite a story. And, and I think in that story, it may not have been a big, as big a part as it could have been or became. 
there was a climate change piece to the story. That is the incandescent light bulb was not really all that efficient in using electricity and converting it into light as would be the fluorescent or the, 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 the latest wrinkle that could be added. But if you can just get a little bit of Baptist flavor in that bootlegger story that you were telling, they can really make time. <laughs> Bruce and I were talking before we, we, we started to hit record and we were talking about Bruce's famous uh, bootlegger and Baptist model. And it, it is the model that keeps on explaining uh, almost any regulation, almost any uh, government policy. Uh, if you look through it through the lens of, of that model that there are, uh, you know, there's a there's a public story of who benefits. And then there's also often a private story of who of who actually can benefit. Uh, and there is often a, a, an alliance between the two. It's a very powerful way of explaining government policy and the political economy of a, of a lot of uh, what we see around us. So um, thank you again for your contributions to political economy uh, and today for this discussion. It's been, a, it's been a wonderful discussion. Any parting words before we, we sign off? Just one, I think that we are into a situation where we're going to have a lot more to talk about in the future, Matt, on bootlegger Baptist models or stories of political economy. And the theme I think that we will see again and again is crisis. Most every problem now that is discussed in Washington is described as a crisis. Mm -hmm. um, and many of the problems that are discussed are existential crises, big time bad. That old famous saying, you don't want a crisis to go to waste. We can begin to look for all kinds of policy proposals to address those crises. And, and uh, that's going to give us more to talk about in the future and maybe more to worry about as, a, as citizens and people who are concerned about somebody's got to pay for it. Yes, I'm sorry we'll have to worry about it, but I, I do look forward to the future discussion. Uh, thank you, as always, Bruce, for joining us. Uh, my, my guest today has been Bruce Yandel, Dean Emeritus of the College of Business and Behavioral Sciences and Alumni Professor of Economics Emeritus at Clemson University. He's also a distinguished adjunct fellow at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University, and he is the author, most recently, of the Economic Situation Report published uh, by the Mercatus Center in March of 2021. Thank you, Bruce. I really appreciate your time, as always, and I look forward to our next conversation. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Bridge Policy Download. You can subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, Google, Overcast, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. If you would like to request a meeting with one of our scholars or ask them a question, please email mercatusoutreach at mercatus.gmu.edu for more information.